Hi, Aja. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. Thank you for having me. It's nice to finally chat. I, we've been yeah. friends for, we've been Twitter <laughs> friends for close to a decade, but this is the first time we're like talking. It's, it's amazing. And I love it. Um, how are things over there in the UK right now? Well, you know what? Everything's better when spring comes. Like and that's, <laughs> that's the reality is that the, there's more sunshine. Like it gets really dark here during the winter. And yeah. when you're already in a pandemic and you can't see friends and you don't really feel like going out, it just, it was a hard winter. So yeah. things are feeling way more positive just because there's more sunshine and, you know, things tend to be sort of loosening up here, of course, still being precautious, but it feels more hopeful. So you've caught me on, on one of my better days. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm uh, in one of my, you know, this week, I think we're switching from to summer, basically, like we, we don't have, um, if you came to Puerto Rico from a temperate climate, you wouldn't notice the seasons. But since yeah. living here, I noticed the changes. And <laughs> I think we got two weeks of winter where <laughs> I could sit and work and not be sweating all day, but mm -hmm. um, we're back to that, uh, like, from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., it is deathly hot all day. <laughs> my family so it, is my family's in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, uh, so I totally get yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Uh, yeah, so I'm from Northern Virginia, right outside of DC. I say it's like zone six on the tube, basically. Um, so Northern Virginia, DC metropolitan. And I grew up eating a lot of plant and fish because my parents are actually like pretty healthy and pretty progressive as far as like food goes. And I was definitely the kid get, that got made fun of for having like whole wheat sandwiches, you know, stuff like yeah. that. And like, you know, we, we see all of these ideas that are popping up and everybody's sort of talking about it like it's new, but my parents belonged to a food co-op when I was a kid and it made them weird. You know? right. <laughs> like they would, we would get like, you know, really great, like fresh, you know, vegetables and my dad would buy things from the local farmer's market. So the way I hear people talking about, you know, how we should be eating now is actually how I grew up, which in some ways is really privileged, you know, and I, I totally recognize that. But as a kid, it made you like a weirdo. <laughs> well, and you know, you have a book coming out uh, called Consumed on Colonization, Climate Change, Consumerism, and the Need for Collective Change. I love the yes. alliteration here. Um, that was my you know, editor. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, and we're going to get a little deeper into this, but, you know, hearing about that kind of upbringing, you know, in terms of food, what was your journey like to understanding, you know, sustainable fashion? Whew. So that's the entirety of the book, basically, was right. talking about fashion and consumption, but also the fashion industry as a whole and how it really uplifts white and privileged voices and doesn't leave a lot of space for anyone else. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the cycle of how things are produced, it makes sense because from start to finish, you know, marginalized people are, are pretty heavily like you know, crapped upon by the system. When we think about where the resources that go into our fashion comes from, it's countries in the global South, you know, mm -hmm. so we have 
these countries in the global south that are resource rich, um, labor rich, but for some reason, not incredibly economically wealthy. And Mm -hmm. the fact that we're not questioning that we should be, you know, like you can look around my living room and you probably can find few things that are actually like made in England. I live in London, Mm -hmm. even though I'm American. And I don't think that that's a, you know, I, I, I don't think that that is the, you know, outrageous reality. I think that's the reality of the system, but nobody's mm-hmm. really actually questioning that like we should. And so mm-hmm. with the fashion industry, your clothing is produced in the global South. Um, the cotton is grown in the global South. The fabrics are made in the global South and it's shipped to the global North where it's consumed really rapidly because we know that like, the multinational brands have really sped up the seasons and made us think that it's normal to buy 20 pieces every season. When in actuality, that's not normal at all. And then we go through our clothing so quickly that, you know, the resale market is booming, but charity shops are chock-a-block of, Mm -hmm. you know, fast fashion. And then because we can't just recycle our way out of this, it gets dumped on the global South where, in our heads, we think that we're doing something charitable, but in actuality, we've created an ecological problem, um, and it's being left on countries like Kenya, Ghana, Rwanda to basically mitigate, you know, and we've had this idea in our head because of colonialism, white saviorism, that sort of stuff, that like, oh, if you donate it to a charity, somebody, you know, in a poor country will really want it, when in actuality... No, nobody wants crap clothing. Like if you bought something that didn't last five wears, there's a very good chance that that person in Ghana doesn't want it either. And it ends up being this disaster system where like the government of Ghana, the, the municipal you know, branch has to really deal with all of these imports. And I as an American, there's one thing that Americans hate the most. It's having to pay their tax dollars to sort out someone else's mess. But that's essentially what the clothing problem is doing to countries in the global South. So I talk about my personal experience as someone who's always sort of been on the outside of the fashion industry looking in. I use the analogy like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory (laughs) with like all the like little like you know, rich kids are like singing and dancing with the candy man. That was me with the fashion industry. But sometimes not being invited in means that you take a really critical and shrewd eye to these systems. And as someone who felt like I was always trying to be in the room, but never really let in the room, what I realized was that I don't actually want to be in that room because this is a problem and it needs to be sorted out. Right. I mean, what did you like about fashion? What really attracted you to the fashion world um, to well, begin with? So the, the the thing that attracted me most to the fashion world from the beginning was a need to fit in through material items. Right. So, I, you know, I said my parents were like sort of hippy dippy for their time, but my mom has always been someone who did not understand the need to fit in through material items. She's always been a secondhand shopper, which I grew up in the 80s, 90s that was not that cool. You know, it really Mm -hmm. wasn't. It was cool in the late 90s, you know, Kurt Cobain, God bless him, like really, you know, sort of made the whole thrifting thing, grunge, that sort of thing. And even then people still didn't get it. I remember in the eighth grade, like 
telling this guy that I had been friends with that I had bought something from a charity shop. And he said, ew, gross. You're like wearing mm. like dead people's clothing. That was the response. So after that, I was like, okay, keep that shit to yourself, Asha, you know? Yeah. And so um, in general, thrifting, secondhand shopping, wearing hand-me-downs has always been something where I didn't want people to look too closely at me because there were plenty of other reasons why I was socially ostracized. I didn't need it to be my clothes, but because I didn't have the right clothes, which when I was growing up, that was like the gap and the limited, you know, before the limited to started looking like a rainbow barfed inside of it. But like <laughs> at one point in time, the limited two was like the shit and I didn't have that stuff. And so I became really obsessed with like labels and, you know, wanting to have the right clothing but then from that obsession from being like socially ostracized came a genuine interest in the fashion industry it became oh wait a minute this is actually really cool and I want to learn as much as possible about this but I knew that I couldn't tell my parents I'm gonna go to fashion school because they're black and they're gonna be like no you're gonna get a degree where you can get a job because we know that like there are certain industries that just were not welcoming to marginalized people. I mean, I feel like the time period where you and I met on Twitter, that was when I started to see a lot of my other Twitter friends who happened to be like black and brown women finally get book deals and their Mm -hmm. books sold. I believe you and I met through a tweet that had mentioned Roxanne Gay as someone you should pay attention to. Do you remember that? Right, I it do. Was, it, was, it was a friend who had said, these are the people that I follow. These are the people you should pay attention to. This was before Roxanne Gay's, you know, groundbreaking success. You know, mm-hmm. she, she was also a person where people just really weren't paying attention and that it just seemed like at some point the doors opened and Egomo Luo was publishing a book that would become a New York Times bestseller. My friend Sam Irby was publishing her essays and they're hilarious. They become bestsellers. So it just seemed like there was a moment where like the world was like, oh wait, maybe we should actually like listen to like black and brown women, you know? And for me, I sort of had to take a roundabout path to getting to where I am because one, my parents were not going to, you know, encourage me to go to school to study fashion or to study writing. Um, and two, I didn't feel like there was space for me in, in these worlds at all. Mm-hmm. So I threw stuff at the wall until it stuck. And eventually I began to realize the fashion industry in its current iteration is actually a disaster. And all the things that we talk about, whether it's racism, you know, intersectional feminism, I was writing about these issues really separate of the fashion industry because they were important issues. Like for a lot of people, people saw people like me saw the rise of Donald Trump, you know, and Mm -hmm. I began to actually talk about race really honestly in a way I never had before because I could tell what was happening, but I was talking about these issues very separate um, in a silo and what I began to realize was that actually all these issues apply to the fashion industry. So then I began to talk about them together and that's where my platform sort of came about from. Right. And, you know, so much of what you say about fashion relates to food. Um, and, I, and so it's like, sometimes 
um, you know, just this really mind melding kind of thing to read you because I'm like, wait, this is also food. And like, we need to talk about these connections too, because um, I don't know, I feel like these are both issues where people, it's feminized, it's, you know, people don't think about, want to think about them very much. You know, these are just things yeah. people have to do. They have to get up and dress themselves. They have to get up and eat something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're kind of taught not to make a big fuss necessarily about these things because we're taught that they're frivolous. Um, yeah. And frivolous, silly, you know. Yes, uh, exactly. And and so it's it's such a, you know, uphill battle to get people to care about these things and to talk about them in a serious manner. And one of the things that kind of really drives me nuts and that you also talk about is how people defend cheap prices out of class concerns without thinking about the exploitation of the worker at the beginning of the chain. As you discussed, you know, you know, we're exploiting the global south for fashion. We're exploiting the global south for food, too. And people defend cheap clothes and cheap food and dismiss the relevance of individual choice. And, you know, I wanted to get your take on how do you how do you see individual action as meaningful even as we seek systemic change? So I think that there's a few myths that people love to peddle about fashion. (laughs) And that's one of the things that I debunk because it actually really annoys me. There's this idea that only poor people buy fast fashion. That is not true. Everybody buys fast fashion. One of the things that I did within my book was I, I talked about class and the resource generation really helped me out big time with this because they have some really great breakdowns of what class and wealth looks like. So, you know, one thing I learned in my book was in America, poor and working poor people account for negative 1% of America's wealth. Mm-hmm. And then the next class group is working class. And that group accounts for 3% of America's wealth. And then you start getting into middle class, managerial class, and then ruling class. And what you find is that people will say like, you know, we just come out of this pandemic. And there were people lined around the block to buy from Primark, which is not an ethical or sustainable store. (laughs) But when you critique it, people accuse you of classism. Here's the thing. The vast majority of people in that line probably are not the people that are within that, you know, 4% of net Mm -hmm. wealth. So like, you know, if you look at the fact that all these major multinational companies that people claim are where poor people shop are actually billion dollar companies, then it is not just poor people shopping from those places. It's literally everyone. And I find in our society, nobody wants to be poor and everybody wants to be poor when it comes to the (laughs) system that they want to participate in. Does anyone actually want to be poor? No. Being poor fucking blows, you know, like, and it's systemic and it's hard to climb out of. And we love a rags to riches story in America where we talk about, oh, well, this person was poor and now they're not, where the actual reality is a person that comes from generations of poverty is really unlikely to be able to find their way out of it because you being poor is actually very expensive and very hard. And so we have this system of fast fashion where literally everyone participates because our entire mindset is that of a consumerist identity Mm -hmm. and that is 
that is beat into our heads as that like you're going to become a consumer and it's subtle it's pernicious it's in films you name a film that we love that's a cult classic that doesn't have like a really great makeover scene right where like <laughs> the main character gets this amazing makeover that involves buying loads of clothing and all of a sudden they're a new person everyone treats them differently like that's a pernicious message that's really like pushed pretty hard in media and so we have a real consumer mindset as a culture and I want to unpick that basically and get people to think about that mindset because once you do you begin to see the ways in which all of this consumption is sort of pushed on you, whether or not you need to consume. Right. No, and I think that's where I get fashion and food diverge because food is absolutely 100% you need to consume it. And I think there, so there's different, different levels of of complication there. Um, And I, you know, I wanted to know how you feel about the way the fashion media covers sustainability and inclusivity. Do you think that, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I know the answer to this question, but like, you know, how, how are these issues being addressed, if at all? You're never going to get the honest truth about the scale and scope of the fashion industry's problem from magazines and publications that depend on those same multinational polluters in order to fill their pages with advertisements. Like if you say something bad about a brand and you're a fashion editor, you'll get barred from things. And so everybody's very much afraid of these brands. So why would someone who's dependent on a paycheck from that group of people who's polluting and harming the earth actually tell the honest truth about the reality? Why would they do that? There's no incentive there. And so I think if people are looking for traditional media to be the one who stands up to like the ills of the fashion industry, they're going to be looking for a very long amount of time. That's never going to happen. I mean, one of the things I cover in my book, one of my you know, favorite stylists, Lucinda Chambers, did this interview after she was ousted from Vogue, where she mm-hmm. basically just lets it all out. And, you know, Vogue apparently tried to get the interview removed from the internet, British Vogue. Um, But she talks about things like, um, you know, she remembers having to do a cover where she put uh, Alexa Chung in this cheesy Michael Kors t-shirt. And she was like, I didn't want to do it. It was a cheesy cover, but Michael Kors was a major advertiser. Mm -hmm. So, so much of what you see in the magazine is very much manipulated by the magazine's relationship to the brands. And so you're never actually going to get accuracy with the scale and scope of the problem from traditional media. If there's if there's any skin in the game, if there's any connection to the money. And I also say even for like people that claim to be like ethical rating scales, right? There's so there's a few like ethical rating scales that people keep trying to like tag on my page saying, oh yeah, I use this. Okay. So they, they rate brands, but they also email spam you every day with affiliate Mm -hmm. links from ethical and sustainable brands. So like if consumption and scale is the problem to which it is, if someone is making their money and it's reliant off of you buying things, how trustworthy of a source can they be in the accuracy in which they're reporting? Of course. And, you know, both of us are independent 
people, culture workers, and you use Patreon. You know, why mm-hmm. did you decide to go that independent route? Because my Instagram was growing really quickly, and I knew <laughs> that the vast majority of you know funding that's available for people on Instagram is through selling people shit they don't need. There right. is there's there's other things out there, but in general. I don't want to be an Instagram that's pushing you to buy stuff. I've done, you know, one advertisement on my Instagram and it's literally with a, um, sustain with a resale, um, Mm -hmm. uh, a resale platform, Bestiaire Collective, because we have so much clothing that I feel like you can't go wrong by buying secondhand. Like this, Mm -hmm. the enormity of the clothing that's, circulating our planet right now we're all gonna have to start shopping secondhand there's no way about it and so if that if there's anything that I can you know push and not feel like I'm really really cheapening out it's it's definitely secondhand but in general you really can't be the person who's like telling everyone why the industry shit stinks and then turn around and go oh by the way buy this thing (laughs) you know it just doesn't it doesn't work And also, I also know that like brands love to hop on a social justice movement when it's Mm -hmm. of the moment, but they do not like people talking about things like race before it's of the moment. And Mm -hmm. so like five years ago, if you use the phrase white supremacy, the hysterics and the fragility you have (laughs) to endure when in actuality today, people are kind of like, okay. I get what white supremacy means, but like if Mm -hmm. the majority of white people are not comfortable with the things that you're saying, a brand's not going to want to sponsor, you know, your page. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm, you know, have a six figure following now, everybody wants to throw stuff at me, but (laughs) you know, before that happened, nobody wanted to throw anything at me. And I, I had to do Patreon because it wasn't one of those things where I could really monetize my Instagram in any way that felt, um, you know, that felt good to me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to create, you know, a space where you weren't having things pushed on you constantly because so much of Instagram now is advertisement. Yeah. So I want it to be that account where like you're scrolling and, you know, you see a dress on another account that you probably don't need. And then the next thing that you see is my post which tells you that 60% of materials on this planet are uh, petrochemicals so polyester which is essentially oil and then I talk about the fashion industry's links to oil you know we all talk about how fossil fuels are ruining everything well that's another way they're ruining things but people (laughs) people don't make that connection and so I basically want to be a counter argument to all the consuming that goes on through Instagram. I mean, that's amazing to me. And I, you know, I think this is maybe a selfish question. I don't use Instagram the way you use Instagram. How do you balance what you post on Patreon and what you post on Instagram? You know, the thing is the sustainable fashion conversation and, you know, basically the fashion industry getting its shit together is moving so quickly that people can't keep up with it all. So I sort of run my Patreon as like a, you know, sustainable and ethical fashion newswire, you know? So one of the things I noticed is that I do get a lot of people who, you know, are journalists, are people within the industry who follow me because 
they know first thing in the morning, I will have gone through the news stories that I see and pick something that's interesting and relevant to discuss on my Patreon. So I, I managed to basically become a newswire for this topic that I'm really right. interested in, but a topic that a lot of people don't know how to mitigate. Because once again, the fashion industry is also very like closed off from people that might not know. You know, it's one of those things where the fashion industry's always had an air of mystery. And I break things down in layman terms for people so that they can have a conversation about these topics with their friends. Right, right. And, you know, as you use Instagram so much, you know, you use your face, your body, yourself to promote your work. And um, I think I'm, you know, struggling with that a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, how is your personal visibility a, a significant aspect of your work? I feel really exposed now, to be honest. Right. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't used to feel that way. But now it's like, when I'm out and about in London, like I will bump into people that follow my work. And that's a really weird feeling, but everyone's really cool. But I do, mm -hmm. I feel more exposed now than I felt before. And it's not bumping into people. I don't mind that. It's when you just tweet something benign and then it ends up in like a major newspaper. Mm -hmm. That happens to me a lot now. And that's a bit like, oh, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> so um, there's a part of me that sometimes just wants to just pull back from that space because I don't think that there should be any one face of the movement. And mm -hmm. I also feel like the space still isn't diverse enough. Like I don't yeah. want to be the the face of like, oh, here's, you know, we need a black person to talk about like the fashion industry and sustainability. Someone call Aja Barber. No, there's a lot of people you can call, mm -hmm. you know, it's not yeah. about there just being one of us, which sometimes I do worry that that is, you know, the direction that sometimes things go in. I think there's room for many voices, but yeah, I, I think I worry about being overexposed and sometimes I'm sick of looking at my own face, but, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think about boundaries as well. You know, if I had like a kid, for instance, I am yeah. never going to be the person that talks about my pregnancy on Instagram because uh, one, I don't want to, it, it doesn't interest me Two, social media can trigger people, you yeah. know, like the, you don't know who's experiencing infertility or, you know, having issues with that sort of stuff. And three, mm -hmm. I, I don't want my Instagram to become like parenting because there's plenty of good parenting Instagrams and I don't need to be one of them. So I, I do think sometimes about just pulling back and doing more infographic and, and less style and less, but at the same time, I also think my visibility as a, you know, black plus size body is also really important because that has been so crucially missing from the conversation for so many years. So yeah. I, I, I go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very difficult because to, to balance that and, and the ways in which people respond when you have a platform is just, uh, it's horrible. I mean, I don't know. It, it's just really, um, I really struggle now with posting anything, saying anything because it is. You get targeted. Yes. I, have, I have an account that's like, I am so sick of your bullshit. And it's all about how the person hates me. And I'm just like. <sighs> 
wow, like what did I do? And they're mad because I, I called in a brand that they really liked who had been Mm -hmm. very disingenuous in the plus size conversation. And then we're trying to sort of present themselves. Like they were like going to leave the moment when in actuality myself and other plus size people have been asking them for years to be inclusive with sizing Mm -hmm. because this is a brand that makes one particular item so it's not even like they roll out a new 16 piece collection every year no (laughs) it's pretty much the same thing and if you're only making one item then you should be the first person to scale that item up in different sizes but they just flat out refused and I'm just kind of like just say you don't like fat people and go but like don't Mm -hmm. pretend like it's rocket scientists or rocket science or like you know, sacred geometry to scale up a pattern. <laughs> it is, it's, it's hard, but it can be done because small brands yeah. do it every single day. So this yeah. brand had been very avoidant, ignorant, and negligent in the conversation, particularly in private conversations they'd had with me to the point where I stopped wearing their product on my grid, took down all of their photos. I still wear the clothing because you, you should wear the clothing that you buy, mm-hmm. regardless of whether it's fast fashion or <laughs> a brand that leaves a bad taste in your mouth, give it a good life. But I don't wear it on the grid and I don't promote it. So when they came out with, we're going to do a, po- a, a podcast about like plus size inclusivity, I was just like, oh, go fuck yourself. So yeah. I said publicly, I talked about everything that happened and how for two years, plus size people had been asking them to be inclusive. And, you know, we'd have more respect for them if they just said, yeah, you know, we really weren't doing a good job with this. And now we really want to do it. And we're really committed. And thank you, everyone who pretty much tried to open (laughs) our eyes and ears and we didn't listen. Um, But instead, they tried to present it like, oh, we're going to do a podcast and we're so great. And I was just like, no, we need an accountability moment here. And what I found was that that brand had some cult-like fans who raged against me for weeks. One of them is still holding a grudge. Why? Because I asked a brand to do better, which by the way, you are defending a corporation, not a person. (laughs) Get your fucking life. That's weird. I'd rather kick my own ass before I defend a corporation the way some of the fans of this brand have defended them. It's bizarre. No, it's, that's really ridiculous behavior. And, uh, you know, it, it happens, you know, in food media as well, you know, being like, someone who's been writing about vegan stuff, plant-based stuff, whatever you want to call it for years. And then all of a sudden everyone jumps on the bandwagon (laughs) and it's like, I get called, you know, to do an interview with someone who doesn't know anything about anything, but got assigned to write about it. And it's like, this is really frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's annoying when people really try and like commodify stuff in and really disingenuous ways. But like, one of the things that I just think is so bizarre about our society, and I think social media is a real like, impactful part of this is the ways in which people try and humanize corporations. Like one of the assignments (laughs) that I always give my readership is to watch the film, The Corporation. I watched that in the early 2000s when it came out and it was life changing for me because social media is one of these things where like corporations are, they try and be in on the Twitter jokes, you know, they try and use the lingo and when they fuck up, they try and make it seem like they're an individual instead of a multinational company. And that's really 
dangerous because what we know is that like a corporation can only act in its own best interests. That it, that's the only thing that it can do because it's not a human with emotions. And if a corporation were a person, it would be a psychopath. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, when people get really overly invested in defending companies, I'm just like, nah, get your life. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, how do your perspectives on fashion, if they do, influence how you consume in other kinds of arenas, you know, food, media, et cetera? You know, I think I gave a quote recently. Someone was asking me for recommendations for a newsletter, and I was like, well, the thing I'm obsessed with now is making sure my what I wear expresses my ethics that I talk about in terms of what I eat. Because I think, I mean, obviously, I like clothes. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like, but also at the same time, it's like, it's really important for me that if I am visible in this space talking about these things that I'm not also, you know, promoting similarly exploitative chains in other industries. And so, yeah, you know, how me. does, yeah, yeah for, <laughs> for me, totally. Like I, I think about it in everything. Like I don't have a Spotify account because artists that I really like who happen to be musicians talk about how they don't make any money from Spotify. So even though everybody has Spotify, I'm just the person who is rebuying all the music on Bandcamp <laughs> because most of my music is locked away on several different computers. Thank you very much for that, Apple. That's so cool of you. And so I'm just basically rebuying music and yeah, I think about it a lot. I think about the food. Now, I also know that like as a person who lives in London, I am so lucky we have yeah. access to like so many different types of food. We have, you know, different markets nearby. We can buy from all sorts of different cultures. And so I know that like I, I have a lot of access and privilege in that way. And that's part of why you know, I can only stick to really fashion because food is, is mm -hmm. more complicated in that way. But yeah, I think about it in all areas of my life. But in general, I truly believe that most of us of significant privilege just need to do less, do less, yeah. you know, like <laughs> the, the excess that comes when you have a significant amount of privilege in our culture isn't normal to like the rest of humans on this planet. And so for me, you know, I really, one of the things that was crucial to like everything was moving to London. When I moved over here, um, my partner and I have been dating long distance for three years and mm -hmm. we, um, I had to get rid of so much stuff. And, you know, I was, I was in my thirties, so I had 30 years of a life in the States and I'm still mitigating that stuff because, you know, as someone who does the work that I do, I know that like just dumping it on a charity shop's doorstep is actually really bad. Like mm -hmm. that actually doesn't help anyone. And so from the time I knew that we were going to like get engaged and I was going to move over here, I basically tasked myself to thoughtfully get rid of all of my items that I wasn't planning on taking with me. Some of it was clothing that had grown too small because we have this weird thing in our society where we pretend like it's natural that every person should stay the same shape. No matter what. <laughs> That's, that is not natural. I mean, some people do and it's natural to some people, but it's not natural to every person. And so a lot of the clothing from my early twenties was too small, basically. Um, 
I'm someone who has uterine fibroids. So like things around the waist, it just, some of that stuff was, I wasn't going to get into it again. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I basically tasked myself with shedding myself of the stuff that wasn't going with me in a thoughtful way, which meant for clothing, picking out the things that can be resold, reselling the stuff that can be resold, putting up stuff in Facebook galleries for all of my friends and saying, you know, if you want it, just get the shipping and I'll send it to you. Um, You know, but really, really trying to be very thoughtful about how I was going to pare down essentially. And Mm -hmm. that is still a work in progress. Every time I go home to my parents' house, I task myself with going through stuff and trying to rehome it in a way that's thoughtful and helpful. And I feel like that will be my life chore. And then also (laughs) moving over stuff slowly. So like, I've got like a bunch of really great coffee table books that I love. And I just have to like bring them over one at a time because they're all so heavy. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's, if you have to do a big move, and you do it in a way where you really, really shed stuff in, in a way that's impactful and thoughtful and, you know, keeping as much stuff out of the landfill, then what you'll find is now that I'm here, I think about everything I bring into this flat. One, London mm-hmm. doesn't have closets like the U.S., so that's enough. <laughs> that's, that's something you got to grapple with. But um, before it comes home, I, I genuinely think, where is it going to go? We're very limited in space. And that's really helped me in how I consume stuff. Right. (laughs) But then also when you talk about the fashion industry every single day and read about what's happening and how it's impacting the environment, if you have to do that for a living, you're just like, I don't want anything. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's real. It's real. And, you know, for you, is cooking a political act? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I just took a sip of my tea. No, it's okay. <laughs> clothing, clothing will always be political. It, you cannot separate politics from clothing. You can't separate labor practices from clothing. You can't separate exploitation from clothing. You can't separate outsourcing and things like NAFTA from clothing. You can't mm-hmm. separate what clothing means to certain people, how it can be religious, how it can be political, how it can be cultural. You know, people know the uniform of the Black Panthers, right? Like there's certain clothing items that are evocative of social movements, eras, but where you tend to shop and buy is political as well. Absolutely. And one thing that people need to really step, you know, take it a step farther pull back the curtain of your favorite brand and see what politicians and what policies they're supporting. Because one thing that people really, you know, I think some people know about it and they ignore it, but like Richard Hayne of Urban Outfitters used to give a lot of money to the right wing. <laughs> yeah. And he owns Urban Outfitters, Anthropology and Free People. So free, so hippie-like, yay. You know, so it's it's about, you know, all of these things. It's about our world. And when you think about how many jobs the fashion industry provides for on the planet, it's political. When you think about the fact that 80% of garment workers are women, hence intersectional feminism, it's political. It's all very political. My question is you is 
is cooking a political act, but I think you answered it <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I thought you said clothing. I totally thought you said clothing. Sorry. You answered yeah. it in the same way. I okay, think cooking <laughs> is absolutely political too. You know, who grows your food, where it comes from. Clothing, cooking is cultural. Cooking is, you know, it. Yes. And when you also think about like, appropriation in cooking that's a whole nother kettle of fish which you know you see it all the time where like a, a restaurant run by people from a certain ethnicity doesn't survive and then all of a sudden another shiny and new restaurant opens up mm -hmm. which is run by white people who are selling a watered down version of the dish and they're doing great and they're getting write-ups and everyone's saying this is delicious and amazing when in <laughs> actuality you know, that's, that's somebody else's culture and somebody's profiting and not even doing it in the right way. So yeah, it's all political. <laughs> well, thank you, Aja, for, again, for taking the time. And it was so wonderful to finally talk to you. <laughs> oh my goodness. We're done already. That went really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.